Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Missouri Woods and Water Podcast with your host, Nate Thomas, here for the intro today. Today, we got a treat, uh, least for me and hopefully for a lot of our listeners. We got Jason Phelps. Um, If anybody from the Midwest doesn't really know who Jason is, Jason is a uh, world-known elk caller, actually owns his own company, Phelps Game Calls, has been on all kinds of uh, televised hunts. And is also uh, the host of a podcast called Cutting the Distance, which is on the Meat Eater Network. So Jason is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to hunting out west. And we talked to Jason today about all kinds of cool stuff, actually. We talk about our bow setups, which we weren't planning on, but we went into a rabbit hole right off the bat with Jason. Then we talk about elk, obviously, how he started Phelps Game Calls. And we actually get into... Jason's very first ever uh, whitetail experience last year in Kansas, he went uh, whitetail hunting for the first time in his life, uh, as far as we know. So it's an awesome show. We're excited. Uh, We were super excited to talk to Jason. So um, we're going to hop into the show right after I get through these sponsors right quick. Make sure you check out our website, MissouriWoodsAndWater.com, for partner discounts, shows, and more. Morel Targets, I've been pounding the hell out of my uh morel target uh the past few weeks getting ready for wyoming which is uh right around the corner for us uh when you guys hear this show andy and micah will be almost on the road to colorado and we are hoping to have an awesome elk trips recap show uh, sometime after we're done at the end of september by the time everybody gets back from their show or their trips so um wish andy and micah good luck out in colorado along with our buddy pat and brandon and roger uh weber outfitters weberoutfitters.com man they're starting to carry more and more stuff as you can see uh we all got our bows from them this summer and just got back from our our uh what do you call that thing the uh try and buy whitetail classic that they had uh, which they have already released a date for i do not have it in front of me for next year but i think it's mid-august sometime uh, so get on their website and check out that date and uh, mark it on your calendar. Athlon Optics, I actually just mounted my Midas tack onto my new, hope my wife doesn't listen to this show, six Creedmoor that I bought. And uh, got a Midas tack that I put on it today with my buddy Austin. Uh, he helped me out with that. Appreciate his help on that. And um, if you can't find a dealer, let us know. We'll find one for you. They got some awesome products coming out too. Midwest Gunworks, use the code Missouri, or no, I'm sorry, Woodswater for 5% off. Uh, I actually just bought a Arca mount. Uh, just got it in the mail yesterday for that new gun. So uh, check them out. River's Edge Tree Stands, use our code Missouri10 for 10% off, plus free shipping on hang-ons and ladders. Uh, if you don't have stands out, you need to get on it. 
and uh, get that free shipping. Lucky Buck, luckybuckmineral.com. You know, deer are starting to kind of transition off of hitting mineral a lot right now, but they still check it out. Um, you know, you're not at this point in the year, you don't need to dump full buckets. Uh, so you can kind of make a bucket go a long way throughout the, the, the winter and fall months. Uh, but it's not too late to get some out and, you know, try to get some inventory on X use our code MWW 20 for 10, 20% off. Uh, we got a show coming out with them maybe next week. I can't remember if it's next week or the week after, but show coming out with Jared at on X about some of the awesome features that are going uh, on with them so check that out black ovis use our code mww10 10 off you can get um pretty much anything there man uh it's it's a pretty awesome place uh awesome owners uh love working with them folks and then reveal cameras by tacticam been the easiest things i've ever set up uh, like i said before so get on their website find dealers uh you can you can find them pretty easily they got some sales going on a lot, and uh, absolutely love my reveal cams. If I had to pick between the X Pro and the uh, Reveal X2 uh, Gen 2, I would almost pick the Gen 2.0 right now. Uh, it's super easy to you know set up. It's a little bit cheaper than the X Pro, and uh, with that Wi-Fi feature where you can see the way the camera's looking, I think it's pretty sweet. Uh, it doesn't have GPS, but you know I I, I really like those cams. And then Camo Fire, get on their uh, their app, check out that flash sale daily, and find some of those last second deals before season starts. So those are our sponsors for today's show. Um, thank them, uh, thank you to them for helping us uh, make this show possible. And uh, let's just get right into this show with Jason Phelps. Um, super excited that we got to talk to him, and let's hop right into it. This is the Missouri Woods and Water Podcast. Okay, with us today, special treat for me. Mike, I'm sure you're excited too. Of course. But, uh, we have Jason Phelps, Phelps Game Calls, and host of Cutting the Distance podcast. What's up, Jason? Not much. Thanks for having me. It's getting uh, real close to hunting season, so uh, we're about 20 days out from September, which for us, you know, elk hunters out west is, is the month that uh, means everything. Feels oddly not close, but it's like right around the corner. See, for me, I like I've been, oh, we, yeah, we leave before Nathan does and probably before you guys, we, we always uh, go the opener for, so it's literally two and a half weeks. I think we leave. So I've been having a hard time sleeping at night cause I get too excited and I just start <laughs> thinking about, you know, bugling mules and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So great time of year. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, just so much to do on the checklist, though. I'm so bad with my schedule nowadays where it's like I'm looking at my calendar today, like order additional darn tough socks. It's like that's how I've like <laughs> just because there's like these things I need to check off this list before I get going and, and don't have time to get them. Uh, you know, it's like starting next week. Got to start getting my broadheads like tuned in, make sure they're yeah. tuned perfect. And uh, yeah, just a lot of stuff on the list that just creeps up really fast. Yeah, that's something I this year I changed my setup. Uh, I went back to Iron Will Broadheads, and the two years two years ago when I was using them also, um, I was like very specific. I so a broadhead had you know was number one through six, 
and then I would have an arrow yep. that I would marry to that broadhead. This broadhead flies really good on this arrow or whatever. And uh, this time I didn't get to fletch my arrows with the broadheads. So usually when I'm fletching those arrows, I'll start my cock vein, you know, lined up with one of my blades and then go from there. And I, I use three, yep. three fletches. Well, this time I'm just going to, yeah. you know, screw on broadheads until they, work. they look good. And then I'm going to shoot them. Yeah. And if they fly good, then that, you know, that arrow and that broadhead are together for the rest of the season. And it, that takes yep. time. It, it takes a while to do that. And, uh, I haven't done it yet. Yep. So yeah, yeah, I'm a little behind the eight ball on that one as well, but been trying to shoot my, and yep, that's another thing you got to think of. You got to take time cause you, you got to actually shoot your bow too <laughs> and, you know, stay up on yep. it. So, yep. yeah, I do something real similar. That's very time consuming is you, you know, you say you get two dozen arrows, you know, for the year, you got a dozen, I, I label them all one through 12. I shoot four fletch just so I can knock tune. Mm -hmm. And then you got to shoot the arrow, twist the arrow four different times, make sure like everything's good, you know, and, and then you set from there, then you put a star on basically for me when I'm knocking an arrow, while I'm hunting, like the star is always up. I can see it, you know? And so it's just like a yeah. weird system I've come up with, and, you know, arrow number seven might be your number one arrow and you just kind of set it all up and yeah, right. yeah it's a, it's a, it's a process to make sure and usually usually i'll shoot good you know i shoot iron wills and and uh, black eagle you know and my combo is is really really conservative but uh you, there's still a couple ones where you got like a bad knock or you know something just isn't yeah. working for you and you just kind of throw that one to the back end of the the yeah are the you list. are you one of those uh heavy foc people or do you just you Not, get your setup that you like and that's what you go with and whatever the grains comes out that's what it is so I, I do things a little bit backwards from everybody. Like I go in wanting a bow. So I've, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. I've got the luxury of, you know, if somebody doesn't know who I, you know, my, my physical shape, I'm, I'm six foot five and 250 pounds. Right. And my wingspan is, you know, that of like a seven footer. So I shoot a 32 plus inch draw length. Wow. Must be um, nice. Must be I, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so I get, I've got like infinite speed and energy on reserve. Right. Um, so I shoot a two fifty spined arrow, uh -huh. super heavy. So I just naturally get these heavy, heavy arrows. We stuff enough weight up front, but then what I do before I build all this, I just want an arrow that shoots about mid two eighties. I I'm not, I could shoot an arrow that shoots three forty. I, I can build that setup and be legal. And, but I, I just design everything to about two eighty five. Um, add weight, do whatever I need to do. And it usually puts me at about that 14%, you know, yeah. front of center. It's just, it's just easy for me when I, I pick that speed. Now, if I started chasing, you know, all kinds of, of speed or I wanted a 700 grain arrow, um, it, it's a different story, but you know, right now, um, I'm shooting a 560 grain arrow at 286. Jesus. Like it's everything. It's just a hammer. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't have to be crazy heavy, but it's, it's still, you know, a, a monster setup for, for anything we're going to hunt. Right. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and it gives me a little, I don't ever design for, for the, for the conservative, but you know, if you do happen to run into bone, you know, iron wheels, heavy arrows, like I'm, I think I'm going to be all right. Yeah. See, that's where I, I struggle. Um, and that's why I went back to iron wheels this year because I, I feel like I made a mistake last year, but, um, I'm the exact opposite of you. I'm 5'7". So I've got a 27-inch draw length. So I chase speed no matter what. Um, I'm shooting an elite 
uh, era this year, and I just got everything tuned. Well, not just a while ago, got everything tuned up and ready to go. Yeah. And I'm at 258 feet per second, shooting a 420 grain arrow. I'm already slow and yeah. light, so I was, I'm, you know, I was kind of thinking. I was talking to our uh, our bow guy, who's who's a genius, and uh, he re- he prefers not to be named, so we'll we'll not say his name. But yeah. Um, yeah. His biggest thing is, hey, if you're going to be light and a little bit slow, then I want you to shoot something that will cut the second it touches anything. And yeah. I already had iron wheels, and I had shot them pre- uh, previous, so I just went back to them. You know, I, I need to yeah. be able to cut quickly. Cut on contact. And, you know, obviously iron wheels are some of the best material out there. So if I do contact, you know, bone, I have a better chance of making it through or whatever. Obviously, I, I prefer yep. not to. But, you know, I mean, yep. that's why it's hard to, like, put everybody in the same boat when it comes to what do you, you use and what do you set up. Because a guy like Jason, honestly, he could probably shoot an expandable at elk. He's he's so yep. heavy yeah, and I, fast, you know what I'm saying? Right. Whereas yep. that's a horrible idea yep. for a guy like me. Uh, yeah. So it just depends yeah. on like what somebody's setup is, honestly. Yeah, and you know, even expandable. I, I'm not going to get into it. it. It's all opinion, right? But sure. um, I I shoot iron wheels, but I still shoot their S100s. I want yeah. for elk. I want the absolute minimum cutting diameter because more so than than getting a big gaping hole on an elk. If I hit it in the right spot, I hit it in the right spot, regardless of how big a hole goes through there. But I want to try to do everything I can to get that thing to come out the other side for you know Two for holes. having that extra. The, yeah. yeah, I want that extra blood um, is so much more important to me. So you know, and flights better, and and so all of these things. Like I end up just shooting these the smallest fixed heads I can um, for elk, and and it's been a great recipe. Um, you know, I think I've I've lost one archery elk um in the last 10 years and i lost one like way early when i started but you know i haven't lost a lot of elk with that idea like you know even when i was shooting slick tricks like the absolute smallest head i could get with them you know and i was shooting the viper trick something that cuts on contact real small head um you know now i'm shooting iron wheels staying real small so um it, it seems to be a good recipe for elk at least when when i first started hunting somebody and i don't remember who it was i wish i could remember told me you know, poking two holes in them is better than poking one big hole, you know, make it come out both sides. And and I've I've tried, obviously when you make your shots, you're trying to make a shot that will do that. Um, and doesn't work out all the time. Doesn't work out all the time. (laughs) Last, last year I was messing around with new broadheads and I think, I really think that's what my issue was. I was shooting those, uh, thorn, uh, crown crown, you know, it's a gnarly looking head, but you know, it was cheap material. I hit it square in the shoulder, and it literally only thing that penetrated was the broadhead itself, and then it broke off right there at yep. the, where the insert is. And so I was like, yeah, yeah I'm not going to do that again. So yeah. I, I changed things yeah. up. And I, I actually – I went to an expandable this year, but I went with the Severs, and I don't know if you know them at all, but they Yeah, use, yeah, yeah. That's a little different little different setup than, than most of them out yeah. there. Right. I mean, I feel like they yeah. have the higher quality steel. It's a cut-on contact blade. Uh, really, Your I mean – Tip. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, really, really good, good high quality expandable. So we'll see how it does yep. this year. Yeah, hopefully yeah. I get to test it at least. Yeah, <laughs> put it to. Yeah. Uh, so have you always? So the the one thing I haven't changed yet, and 
I wasn't planning on talking about bows, but here we are. See, yeah. I told you, it, it just goes wherever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're in the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. I, we go down a lot of those. Um, the one thing I've not changed about my arrow setup, so I got two dozen arrows new this year with the new bow. And my old bow, which I also am set up to run, so it's going to go to Wyoming with us also, just in case you know what hits the fan and I need a second bow, it's going to be there. But with that bow, I have always shot, you know, your basic blazer three-fletched arrows, and I've always been happy with them. I've never had an issue. I've always shot good. So I, I, I haven't changed. The one thing I've always thought about is it would be so much easier to tune my broadheads if I had four four fletchings. Yeah. But yep. once again, I went right back to the blazer three veins, <laughs> and, um, you know, it's just going to be like more I have to do because, like I said, I'll I'll – I'll screw the, um, all of our arrows are kind of set up like a Western hunter. Um, like I feel like Midwestern hunters, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, were very cock vein. Like we have a, a white cock vein and the two other veins are going to be red or whatever color. And then Western hunters yeah. don't care what color the veins are, right? Well, mine are no. all that way. Like mine are all orange or mine are all yellow. So, then I can move that vein and mark it like you do. Um, but yep. it'd be so much easier if I had the three. I just could not, or four, I just could not bring myself to it. Have you always shot <laughs> four, or what made you make that switch? Yeah, so um, so I shoot all white veins and a white knock because I can see it fly better. I don't shoot lighted um, as of yet. I just, I can, my eyes aren't bad enough yet. I can see white <laughs> fly great. I always know right where my, my arrow hits as long as everything's white. Now, you even switch me up a little bit and give me like an orange knock i start to lose my arrow real quick so i shoot all white um and then it just give if you go three um you have to index that arrow right because you'll otherwise it won't fly right where with the four you can you have to knock it right whether it's upside down you're going to have vein clearance mm -hmm. so it was like in the moment back when i started doing it this way i wanted to make sure that i didn't screw things up out in the woods uh and that's really what led me to four. But then as I, as time went on, I'm like, well, it, it gives me, as long as I don't mark my veins yet, it gives me four different chances to knock tune this thing. Um, and then also with black Eagle, I don't know if you guys are using it, we're using the new focus system. So if my broadhead isn't quite right, I can undo the Allen screw, twist my broadhead 40 degrees, tighten my Allen screw back down, rescrew my broadhead in and see if that fixes it. So it just give, it, there's a lot less arrows that get set in that like don't meet the requirements pile um, by shooting four vein and without having to strip fletching and refletch and, and twistings, you know, uh, 45 degrees on a four fletch. So I've kind of always did that. It just makes my life easier, especially when I'm hunting. If I, for some reason, screw up and knock the thing upside down, even though I've got the big star on the top, I know my arrow is most likely still going to be okay, or I'm, I'm at least not going to have any contact. And then, I used to shoot blazers as well, but there were little gremlins that, that, at least with my setup, that would pop up is contact. You know, whether uh, you know you're shooting like a a, a cage or your the blazers just left me like very little room for like you know touching stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I I switched over to like the AAE Maxes just because they're a little more lower profile. They seem to be able to steer just as good. Uh, but it just like in my mind, everything's like on the conservative side. Like, yeah, these blazers might fly better, but this fly is good enough, and I'm not going to touch anything if 
if uh you know i do happen yeah. to not you know if my knot gets twisted 20 degrees and all of a sudden i've got a, a vein going straight up off my rest i i might be able to get by without yeah. screwing it up at one i mean as far as the knocks go i don't know if you've ever done this trick but like i i do shoot uh lighted knocks but i found that if you take and the, and we shoot black eagles as well we shoot, we all shoot rampages, rampages. And I'll find that I'll take a, like a Walmart sack and I'll put that knock through that and push that into the arrow. And that takes up a lot of the play and that way it won't spin as freely. And that's worked out really good for me. And I've never had to worry about that, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah, but, it is a little different. But um, And see, I, it's just oh. my, my biggest issue is I don't like changing. So, for instance, I'm, I'm told you I have shoot the Elite Era this year. Prior to that, I shot a 2010 Bowtech Assassin until this year because I liked the bow and I didn't want to switch. So I kept getting it restrung. Yeah. And the blazer <laughs> veins have always done me well. Black Eagle Rampages have always taken care of me. And until like I went to the Iron Wheels, I was shooting, shooting slick trick S100s. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm a very. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm a creature of habit. Yeah. You know, if it does, if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of guy. But yeah. when I'm tuning my broadheads, that's the time I'm like, man, I should have done four fletchings or, you know, whatever. I should have, <laughs> you know, because even blazer or boning yeah. has the heat vein, which is a little bit lower profile form of a blazer base, basically, which I'm sure the AE yeah. maxes would be great. But so, yeah, I got two dozen. Same thing. I, they're all the the blazers, and I mean they're shooting great without the broadheads. And hopefully, as soon as I start screwing broadheads on, um, we don't have an issue. My biggest issue with the the iron wheels, and uh, I'm sure you have a lot of experience w with this, is I'm so scared to sharpen them after you've shot them into like you know a, a target twenty times. At the very minimum, you should probably strop them. Or, um, you know, do the, the leather thing, but I, I do the uh, yeah. cereal box with the stuff on it that I have. Um, yeah. do you find that is something you put off? Do you procrastinate messing with your broadheads? So, so I just had Bill, I just had a long conversation with Bill just a couple weeks ago. He was, I think he was on my last podcast mm -hmm. guest and went over a lot of this. Now I might not be right or like talking to him, there is some sharpening and he sells I have found that at least the, the, the way that that A5 tool steel is done up and sharpened and heat treated, I don't feel that my broadhead ever needs touch just from hitting foam. Like the foam is unable to roll the edge of that broadhead. And so I'll shoot it, you know, whatever, whatever if it's 100, 150 times. And, and if that arrow is number one in my quiver and I can still take my thumb and flick and you, you, you know when something's sharp, you know, we've all heard it. And I'm like still cutting hair on my arm I'm good to go shoot an elk with that because I've killed lots of elk with air, you know, with blades back in the muzzy or interlock <laughs> days, whatever I used to shoot 25 yeah. years ago that was never that sharp, brand new out of the package. Um, so hopefully I'm not giving bad advice, but me personally, I, I feel that the way that he's done that steel, heat treated it, put the edge on it, that a foam target is unable to, to screw with that edge. I felt, see, I felt the same way because two years ago, I didn't sharpen any of mine after I got them. I sharpen, maybe touch them up. It should be the better word. Yep. After I shot them, even though when I got them out of the you know the awesome iron roll box they come in, 
you know, I could shave my entire arm with a blade. And then after I shot them 30, 40, however many times into my target, were they as razor sharp? No, you know, they weren't as bad as razor sharp, but I had the same thought. I'm like, I'm shooting this hard steel into foam. How can it really be, you know, doling it that much? And my other thought was, I'm at bigger risk of screwing this blade up by messing with it, um, you know, because I'm not an expert sharpener of blades. Right. That um, I'm like, I feel like I'm at greater risk messing with the damn blade than if I just leave it alone and, uh, you know, throw it in the quiver. Plus, if you're using a quiver that has a foam insert, how many times are you taking it in and out of there, you know? Yeah. Potentially, yeah. yeah. So I don't, I didn't mess with him either, and that makes me feel a lot better. I did listen to that show, and I heard him say that, and I was, uh, I was yeah. happy to hear it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I've got one of, um, one of the the work sharp. You know, it yeah. holds your blade, and you can you can match the angle in real nice. But I don't even, not that it's you know I'm lazy or whatever. It's just not even worth my time. I feel like it's just sharp enough, and and it's. I, I don't even need to touch them up. Like I'm super confident just taking those things, you know, 150 times into a foam and, and going and, you know, shooting into an animal. And then the blood trails have backed that up. Like I haven't ever needed more blood, um, as of late. Yeah. Well, that makes me feel better. Yeah. I did not realize I, I, am a huge fan of Jason Phelps. I will say that, but I did not realize I'm, I've got the same broadheads. <laughs> I, I don't know if you actually have a black, what black Eagle arrow are you shooting? So I, I'm shooting the X Impact just so I can okay. get um, on that 250 spine a little bit. Uh, I don't remember if it was more weight or, or less weight than the Rampage, but it, it allowed me to build a little bit different arrow to get to that 285 than than the Rampage gotcha. um, did. Yeah. So yeah, that's. But uh, I didn't realize. I just that's <laughs> so me and Jason are just smart. That's like, yeah, yeah. same person, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, shoot, we're shooting the. Yeah. <laughs> you see it, it what's that uh that meme where it's there's a picture of one thing and a picture of another and then it's uh pam from the office but underneath and it says it's the same picture that's me I, and jason if you put yeah. us next to each other yeah couldn't tell a difference that's even though he's six five and i'm five seven no big deal yeah, just a foot taller or whatever um so okay we'll, we'll climb up out of the rabbit hole that we just started which i think was a really productive rabbit hole sure. sometimes yeah. our rabbit holes yeah. are much less productive than that yeah but um <laughs> Let's kind of just talk about like how a year goes for you. Obviously, you hunt elk all over the country. Uh, although this year doesn't sound like you're going to be as all over the country as normal. Yep. But yep, change change plans a little bit. Yeah. Um, what are just some of the things you go through in the summertime getting yourself ready? I mean, obviously, you live in the West, and so you know, you're. Are, do you live in Oregon? I live in uh, Southwest Washington. Southwest so just, Washington. I'm only, yeah, I'm about an hour from Oregon. So I'm, I'm down in the bottom corner there. So, you know, some of the states you're hunting, you are close to obviously, whereas, you know, we're 15 hours from Colorado by itself per yep. by vehicle. So, yep. you know, it's a little harder for us, but what are some of the things you're doing in the, the summertime from a getting ready to hunt standpoint do you do a lot of scouting in the summer or have you just i mean you've been hunting so long do you just kind of have an idea where it is you yeah. want to start so i'll tell you what i do now versus what i used to do when i had to do it so there's i you know as, as i've if, as i've grown as an elk hunter i've been able to not have to do some of these things because i know for for pretty good certainty when i show up to a spot that looks like this it's going to have elk um so you know, growing up, learning new, cause I grew up 
in, in what I would say industrial timberlands, which I had to figure out how to go do this more, you know, mountain based hunting, I would say, or public land based hunting, because here when we grew up, it was, uh, you know, either ride your bike down a logging road and beagle off all, you know, in a walk-in area, or you would drive landing, landing, beagle off of like prominent points where you get a boulder spawn. And it was, and we, my family was all, um, in the logging trades. Yeah. So they were always in the woods. They always had their eyes on elk. They always knew, you know, where the animals were. Or, um, so I, I had it easy. And then, um, I kind of got, I wanted to just explore and, and, you know, go find more adventure than just doing it, you know, truck based. And I wanted to hike in, I wanted to camp. I wanted to, um, which then led me to doing a lot of scouting. It was a lot of information picking. It was a lot of, uh, you know, looking on websites and, you know, even hiking reports, like, are there elk in the area? Are these hikers seeing elk? You know, they don't, they're not even hunters, but they will say if they've seen elk up some of these wilderness trails and just trying to gather all of this information, you know, talking to everybody that I could, could about, um, you know, elk and area and, and trends, um, and doing all of that. And then one thing, and I don't, uh, claim to ever be the expert on being in shape. Um, but one thing that was the real difference for me was, um, the, the physical, the, the physical output required to hunt the way we do now versus the way I used to hunt. Right. Um, you know, we could use chainsaw winches and trucks and, you know, haywire, we could get our elk out whole, um, versus like this all needs to be on our back. We need, we're going to be eight miles from the truck. And so that was one thing that I did work on a lot back then was just like a little bit of mental toughness, a little bit of phys- like, how do you get yourself in shape to hunt for 10, 12, 14 days in a row, um, putting your body through quite a bit more. So that was one thing I spent a lot of time on, found a system that worked good for me. And then for me, uh, it was a lot of mental toughness. Like I want to be successful so bad or find success elk hunting that I'm willing to do stupid stuff. I'm willing to, to probably, you know, hunt harder, sore than most people would be, but it's, it's all because I can focus on, on what I'm out there trying to do. Um, but yeah, nowadays let's fast forward to now I do quite a bit of e-scouting still just to confirm that the areas I think, um, will hold elk, will hold elk and that it's checking all these boxes. So, you know, we talk about it all the time, but I'm looking for spots where elk will have feed, um, in a in a drought year elk will have feed during a moist year elk will have water in either drought. you know and, and some of that plays in like this year all right we had a great spring we've got all of this extra you know out west everything's in the spring bloom so we've got higher than normal brush but now we haven't had rain in a lot of spots for a long time so now we've got all this brush that's dying like is the food going to be burnt up by the time i get there up higher you know because a lot of times we'll go to a spot that's super productive one year because they had food above timberline or at that fringe you go there the next year everything's burnt up or something's changed you got to drop and where the elk going to go so i spend more time creating plans a b c you know however many different ideas and then um, that's really my extent because this year I am going to hunt at home, but a lot of my hunts are at a point where, yeah, I can drive there maybe once and set trail cameras and I'll pick them up when I get back. So my scouting is probably way lower than, than it needs to be. But I also do have the advantage that I've, I've been able to proof a lot of my ideas and theories <laughs> in a lot of different spots. And right. so I feel like I've got pretty good at making sure I'm not going to end up in a, in a dead zone. Um, and then, you know, for, aside from that, 
you know, work out two to three times a day, uh, a day, a <laughs> wish, uh, two Freak. to three times a week. Um, uh, you know, try to just keep my lungs and, and muscles, you know, kind of, and really all that is to do is prevent that day three to four, like bonk. Um, I'm never in as good a shape as I need to be, but like I say, I'm stubborn enough when I get there that I just don't want to hit that, that everything's sore on day three or four, um, from hunting hard. And, uh, shoot your bow get get my setup dialed for me i'm not going back down the archery rabbit hole with you guys but for me like one thing in my mind is just confidence in my setup for that year so i want to leave here before i put that bow and strap it into its case like as confident as i can be in that setup um i won't leave here i'll spend another day or two here tweaking my setup or shooting or doing something before i'd rather go hunt with the setup i'm not confident in and then um that's really what it I'm doing in the off season, you know, a little bit of training, um, making sure my bows set up and then just kind of pre-scouting where I think I want to, I want to be, um, you know, and, and what plan a looks like plan B and, uh, go from there. Yeah. As yeah. Good. Uh, I'm asking this selfishly because like I said earlier, we always hunt, you know, opening you know we usually go that first uh nine ten days whatever it yeah. is in colorado it's like the first saturday of september now, right i believe so right. it's usually around yep. the first second third whatever are you do you you might not now but do you hunt the entire season and how does that change throughout the season like obviously the before the rut hits they're not as vocal i mean in my experience and i haven't even been able to hunt the actual rut, rut. for elk uh, yeah. so how does your uh, strategy change beginning middle late uh season for you yeah so i'm very fortunate you know aside from this year's plans being a little different normally i'm every day or every every day that i can be hunting that i've got a tag for i'm out there and and i would say there are days that are better than others for the way that i hunt but um elk have been killed by me or my group from you know the end of August all the way to the end of October with bugling elk and using some of the strategies and the ideas that we use. Um, I feel I'm trying to figure out how to put this in words, but every day in September, I have an equal shot of killing an elk. Like no day is necessarily better than the other. Now, a September 1st versus September 20th, like comparing those two days, September 1st, I may not hear, you know, I may hear 20% of the bugles I will on September 20th, but those ones that you do hear on September 1st have a higher percentage of me calling them in versus the bugles that I hear. So I think by time you say, all right, I can call in half of the bulls I hear on September 1st versus on September 20th, I'm going to call in, you know, 10% of those bulls. You end up in the same spot with the same, um, you know, opportunity for success. So strategies change. Um, maybe as a, you know, my aggressiveness or the calls that I'm going to use to call that, that bull into my location are going to change and vary a little bit from start to finish or, you know, peak to post or, or wherever we're at in the season. But, uh, I've always said there's only so many days in September and I honestly don't think, um, the, the, the time or, or the date is necessarily going to affect your success that much. We, um, you know, it's funny he says it that way because we've had the same, for for out of necessity because some of the guys in our group are farmers and so they can't really be gone late to mid September they need to be back for harvest here, so we've always went like Michael was saying at the beginning very beginning of the season in Colorado in an OTC unit, which is no longer OTC but until last year OTC units, 
Um, you know, anybody could have a tag. Highly pressured, let's say, in that in that yep. regard. But even though we're not in the quote unquote rut at that time, every damn year somebody has a experience with a bull. Like you guys had one last year, was it? With with the one yeah. screaming in your guys' face. Oh, that was Andy. Last, that was Andy. Yeah. Last year we had a lot come in silent. They came in, but it was always silent. Yeah. yeah. So. But it seems like every year there's 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 an experience where there's a bull screaming in your face, beginning of September, and it's like you said, it's like that one that will do it. Seems like he's pretty pretty into it. Um, yeah. Now it's it can be aggravating from our standpoint because when they're not talking you feel like you're just walking around trying to find a needle in a haystack, uh, especially when you got, you know, you you don't know exactly where the elk are, if they're on this mountain, this one, uh, because you don't get to scout, you don't have the opportunity, you you pull in the day before season, set up camp, and it's it's time to go the next morning. So you're, you're hunting a little blind when they're not talking, but it seems like every year they'll talk at some point during that, that trip. Yeah. Yep. And it's, it's, uh, like I said, I, for the excitement and, and what I love, like the peak of the rut is, is fun, but there are some frustrating times and the, you know, not diving too deep into what the rut is. Like it very, very hard to pull off herd bulls at that time of year. You know, you gotta get, you know, our tactics to get very aggressive. We don't do a lot of spot and stock, but, um, you know, we've had a lot of success right in that, like change over time from what I would call, like, if you had to, to draw lines on what, uh, pre, you know, peak and post are like right where the pre rut and the peak, rut, you know, where everything's starting to cross over there, like September 7th to the 12th, September 7th to like the 13th. Um, our strategies work really, really well right there. Um, now, fortunately for us here in like Washington, our season opens up on the 12th. Well, we've only got a two week season. And one thing that not that I still wouldn't hunt, you know, you guys have to hunt opening weekend because uh, of the farmers and the people you hunt with. But one thing I hate is pressure. Like I would just soon yeah. get elk a week after somebody's pressured them, but everybody wants to be out there on opening week. So, you know, it, a lot of these years I'm planning two or three elk hunts. I would just assume plan every week. I'm going to be there's like a week after the opener or a week and a half after the opener. I don't care if people have messed with the elk. Um, we'll go find pockets of them, but the rut's going to happen. And I would just be, I would just assume be hunting without people in my spot or a spot I want to be or messing with the elk um, more so than, uh, you know, being there on the opener. So that's yeah. one thing I always kind of look at as I'm planning is, all right, do I really want to be there on the opener? Um, what kind of extra pressure does that put in the area? It's uh, really deflating. I'm planning my hunts. You know, yeah, it, it is. Um, you know, I don't know what area or type of area you guys hunt. One thing and this goes back to my desire to want to be successful and a little bit of my stubbornness, but I can usually devise a plan that's going to wear me out or, or try to kill me, but I'm going to get away from people like, all right, I'm tired of dealing with all these people, at this trailhead, or this, I'm going to go to this spot. Nobody's went up there because it's steeper, deeper, nastier. And just like, I'm going to dive into there just to get away from them. Um, is kind of, you know, how my, my well, stubbornness and, works because I, I I just want to find that success regardless of of these other people in the area. Well, I mean, if you're hearing what we're saying, I mean, like we kind of were in that situation out of necessity because you know obviously I I did my personally and Micah you know really any of our group we really didn't start hunting elk until we were a little bit quote unquote older. So guess what we didn't have points anywhere. 
Um, so when you're starting like behind the eight ball, you either don't hunt for a few years until you get points built up to you know get a decent unit in certain states, or you pay or for you, a guide, or, or you yeah you you can go that yeah. route, or you go hunt the units that are you buy a tag and go. And so when we first started, like that was our option: do we not want to hunt, or do we want to go hunt this unit? Yeah. And honestly, for the first few years, it wasn't that bad as far as pressure. The last I'd say since COVID, yeah, COVID. There really. were there were times, dude, you'd be. <laughs> Two, was it two or three years ago? I can't remember now. The year Russell wasn't with us. But, dude, you, you'd be, like, hunting, and then you'd get to the top of the ridge and start working your way maybe another direction, and then there'd be, like, two guys walking down. And then you'd, you'd dive yeah. off, and there'd be another guy, and you're just like, I feel like I'm in a city park right now yeah. taking a walk with my dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, how in yeah. the hell am I going to find an elk in this? You know, it's, I mean, it's just, yeah. it, was, it was almost comical. You know, people were yeah. camping – People were camping, and this unit that we were hunting isn't really a backpacking unit. You know, there's four-wheeler trails all over the place. You can be anywhere within an hour like, or two. Like, everything's yeah. about a mile from so- some sort of trailhead for the most part. I mean, there's yep. – but you're like, there's a dude camping up here. These elk are supposed to be up here. How are we <laughs> supposed to handle this, you know? You're right. It was yep. – uh, you yep. know, but – at the same time, would you rather be sitting at home or out in Colorado, you know, taking a shot at it? Yeah. Now, during yeah. that time, we'd been putting in points for Colorado, Wyoming. We've been putting in for New Mexico, you know, because why wouldn't you? Um, yeah. I'm building points up in Arizona for some stupid reason. I don't know why. I'll be 70. <laughs> I'll be 70 before I, I get yeah. that. But well, Yeah, I'll, I'll draw when I'm 60 in Arizona. I, think. I, I don't My even know why time. I'm doing this anymore. But at this point, I'm like, well, I've already spent the $400 for four years, so I might as well just keep going. <laughs> well, it's the extra few grand over the, my lifespan, yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, so uh, definitely I think the, the most disheartening thing isn't so much like the elk not talking and the elk, you know, maybe missing chances. It's it's the pressure you see with other hunters and more power to them. Yep. I mean, I'm not upset at them. They, they have just as much of a right to yeah. be there as I do. Um, and we've met some really cool people yeah. because of the pressure. We met a dude three or four years ago that came out from Ohio, I think Indiana by himself, never hunted an elk before in his life, went out and did it. And his first year killed a, a, a cow. Like that's pretty nice. awesome. That's pretty yeah. cool to do yeah. that by himself, you know? Um, I wouldn't have done it by myself. So, (laughs) you know, it's pretty cool, but, um, yeah, definitely I would say a good piece of advice would be, you know, if you're, if you're thinking hunting is something you want to do in a couple of years, now is the time to start putting, buying points so that you can at least maybe find a a unit that's not as pressured or that has limited tags so that, you know, there's only going to be up to this many hunters in this area at one time. And and you've done a good job of that because of your up, like you were brought up that way, or did you learn it just early to start kind of diversifying your portfolio? Let's say, how did you kind of learn to start doing that? Yeah. My dad really didn't help me out because they didn't buy points. We had it so good here for so long Mm -hmm. that I, you know, until the internet rolled around and whenever that was 2005, 2007, as far as like hunting went, I didn't know that there were elk, you know, elk lived outside of my backyard. You know, it was one of those things where, and then you're like, oh shoot, there's all these opportunities. So I got a pretty late start on the point game. Now, maybe earlier than most, um, you know, I think I've got, I started in Washington and Nevada the earliest. I think I'm up to like 16 years in, but I don't have like, if I would have been 
smart or my dad would have started me you know before, when i was younger i would have had lots of points so it was just one of those things where is uh you know i, I was able to apply it. i just started so i think most western states i'm somewhere between like 13 and 16 points yeah that's pretty cool i mean yeah. and but yeah back to your guys's point on like the otc versus waiting for a draw tag i would tell everybody that i would not want to start my elk hunting career on a special tag without having at least like punch the time clock on OTC because unless you know what you're doing, that would be, you would put yourself at like a, it would be a, a disservice to your special tag to not have at least some time in the elk woods trying to figure it out or understand it. Um, and then jumping into a, a special tag, you know, everybody thinks a special tag just equals like a good bull. Yeah. You might be in a good area with a good opportunity but there's a lot more to it than just drawing a, a special tag especially us you know midwesterners you know we're we're not used to going out into the mountains and you, you don't know what it's like hiking up a you know tall ass mountain until you've walked up a tall ass mountain <laughs> like you got to be prepared for that and if you go in there if you were lo- if smart enough where you were putting in for 10 years and just like i'm gonna wait till i get that one tag or whatever you're, you really are doing yourself a disservice to not just gain those experiences yeah like that and i mean and dan the you know the owner of our network he talks about that with whitetail hunting you know he like when he first started getting into whitetail he got on a monster huge whitetail buck and he hunted that thing for i forget how many years so he took away all those experiences from killing other deer and then he ended up screwing it up somehow or somebody shot it. I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> it, was, it, was but, a, it was shipwreck. Yeah, yeah, shipwreck. And, uh, you know, put yourself in the experience and least experience. Your odds are not high, but there's, no. there's always that slim chance that some miracle is going to happen. You are going to have success. And that's just going to make you a better hunter down the road for hey, sure. Well, and think about the experiences yep. we've had in those OTC units that have helped us get ready. My, my very first year elk hunting – very first day within two hours of being out there i have a bull walk in front of me i forgot i had a freaking bow in my hand all i saw was this majestic thing in front of me at 60 yards and i i just i couldn't believe what i was seeing oh that's what they look like (laughs) i'm telling you now i didn't even realize a bow was in my hand yeah and uh Think about that for flatlanders, even just that, right? I mean, I don't know what an elk look. I've never been in front of an elk in my life before I went hunting, or if you went to Estes Park on a vacation, I guess you could see them within three feet of you. But, you know, just seeing an elk in the woods or in the elk woods is an experience that helps you get better ready for, you know, actually, there's a difference between seeing an elk and being ready to kill an elk. Those are, to me, two different things. And that helped us get ready for, you know, opportunities we've had. And and, uh, obviously now I'm going to be in Wyoming this year. So I feel like if I had just drew drew that general archery tag in Wyoming and not had any experiences before, I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. I still am going to a place I've never been to in my life. I've never stepped foot on. But, you know, I feel at least ready that if, if an elk, if we're going to get an elk in front of us, I'll be able to do what I need to do instead yeah. of, hey, I waited th- this many years to draw that Wyoming tag, and now I get to go kill an elk. Right. Yeah. You're almost lying yeah. to yourself if and you there, think the, that you're going to be, like, really ready. Yeah, and there's so much that goes on between seeing an elk and, and you know, loosening an arrow at an elk. There's 
you know, can you keep your heart rate down? Like the first time it's going to be the, you know, it's going to be the most elevated. You're going to be the most excited. So if you can replicate that a couple of times, even, you know, figuring out when you can draw, like how much is too much for an elk to pick up, like all these little things, it may take you getting through these phases or steps in the process to get to the next one. And if, you know, the last thing you want is to, to call in, you know, the bull of a lifetime on your special hunt and not be able to know when to do these things or have an understanding of when you need to draw or what an elk's going to let you get away with. Um, so it's just, you know, I, you know, a cliche saying, but it's just time in the saddle, like getting your repetitions in on some of these, I guess you'd call them processes or stages of the game. Um, are definitely going to be to your advantage when, you know, when, when the time comes or the, or the next setup or the next call in, um, every time, you know, even after 25 years of this, I feel like every, every year I'm better because of what I got to, to go through the, you know, the prior year. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk, I've really never heard you talk about this and I'm sure you have, but I've always been interested how Phelps game calls started. Um, so, Obviously, you had a passion for hunting elk. How did uh, the game call side of everything work? Did you, um, did you did you see like a need that you you went out and tried to like I'm going to try to do this or how did how did that all come up uh, about with you? Yeah, so I was I've always been a tinker. Um, you know, right prior to the game call company, you know, is what you know. For those that don't know, I'm a professional civil engineer. Um, so I went to school for what, four and a half years to, to be a nerd. Um, you know, but my, my, my brain works, you know, math, science, um, and, and then I'm a tinker. So right prior to this, I was building like high performance ATV exhausts and, you know, tinkering on, you know, tinkering on motors and, um, but, but hunting was always kind of, I would say my true passion. Um, and. And uh, I was real frustrated with the quality of the calls that I was using at the, at the time. And it wasn't so much that none of them were good. I just couldn't figure out why I could get, I could buy 10 of them and two of them were good and eight of them were almost unusable all in the same model. And there's got to be a way through, you know, the process, the building materials, whatever it may be that we can make them all sound like those two. Um, at the time I was designing you know, bridges and building bridges. And one thing when you're building a bridge, you, you've got this spec book, right? That's basically a, you know, what a, a 2000 pages on how everything that's going to be built should be built and to what specification and what process needs to be done and, and what, you know, what material spec, you know, so in my mind, like I was always kind of being, you know, my mind just kind of wired that way. Like there is a process to make sure that no matter what bridge we're building in what part of the world, you know, comes out with a certain outcome, they're all going to be good, you know, or, or to, to standard or safe enough that we can put the post. So like my, my mind's always been wired, like very spec driven, very process driven. And so when I'm, I'm like, there's gotta be a way. So I kind of just went into uh, building out calls, just kind of tinkering. You know, right. I started out with external calls, um, you know, building wood bodied calls, trying to get the sound and, and then really trying to make them easy to use. So not, not only myself who at that time I'd consider a, a good elk caller could use, but anybody could, could use that call to make similar sounds was, was my goal. Um, and just kind of got going down that path, uh, being an archery elk hunter, I knew ultimately I needed to get from wood bodied calls, to diaphragms, because that was where you know, the, the market was, that's what everybody wanted to use. And so, you know, 
a couple of years in, um, as funds allowed, we bought the machines, the presses and whatnot and started doing that. And I think it was just, you know, some of the success just kind of stemmed from, um, designing what I wanted to use, you know, letting my friends give me feedback and then really just listening to what they said and, and trying to, trying to, uh, make adjustments so that it, it was a good call for the most amount of people. And then, um, my engineering background allowed me to very quickly and easily make design changes on my computer, ship it to 3d printers, you know, ship it to manufacturers so we could test parts really quick and proof them. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of one thing led to another, we expanded the, the brand we added to, and, um, yeah, I, I mean, I get, I get the credit for, for designing this stuff, but it was really our community, um, our good friends. It was a team that I had built, uh, around me that really kind of, you know, propelled this thing, you know, is we had a little different motto. It's like, we didn't necessarily want the best elk callers always. We didn't necessarily want the, you know, the, you know, I hate using the word, but we didn't want all of the killers to use it. Like we went and looked for number one, like really, really good people and then made sure that they could call and kill elk. This guy like, sucks. We went after, we went after, like, yeah. yeah. If I could turn it's him like, into an elk no, caller, I'm doing just, something. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. This guy's just a bad person or this guy doesn't kind of fit the mold of just being like a good, genuine person that we think is good for hunting in general. Like it's, it's not going to work out. So we went and searched for like, just man, salt of the earth solid people um and then usually since they're in that that ring they're already pretty good elk callers and pretty good elk hunters so that was kind of our our uh our ideas you know you, you can chase great elk callers all over the place but if they're not they're not going to represent the brand and and you know take the time to to go chat with a kid for five minutes and you know give them tips and pointers on how to run an elk call and if they can't handle the so you know if they're always flying off the handle on social media like that always reflected on us and so that was kind of our goal. We built a, we built a great team, built a great foundation, um, and then uh, you know, like we were talking before the podcast, we have a lot of fun. Our groups, you know, pretty pretty fun, a um, little bit entertaining. Like we just had that that edge, and I'm not gonna lie, like timing was on our side. Like we, I always joke that we literally started promoting our business on Facebook, like maybe on the best day to ever promote it. You know, it's back when you could get traction, you could reach people's eyes. Um, we were kind of one of the game call companies to really like use social media to push our brand and our, and our uh, message. So, um, a lot of things lined up and then ultimately it comes back to just the designs were good. I think they're user-friendly. One of the things that we've really been, we've always been focused on, but really, um, have been able to, to kind of play to is, uh, some of the designs that that let anybody sound 95% as good as, you know, we can sound with all of our experience, all of our time running a diaphragm. It's like, you know, the easy sucker. You can't run a diaphragm. Well, here, I'll give you a cow call that sounds probably better than I do um, with a diaphragm. Um, you can't beagle here. I'll give you the easy bugler that, um, yeah, maybe you can't add moans and groans and chuckles in, but, uh, you know, you can bugle and, and uh it, I hate things that are cliche, but one of the cool things in my seat is, you know, after we release that easy bugler is guys emailing me, you know, by, by the handful, man, I can't thank you enough for the easy bugler. Like I've always been scared to bugle during a season, finally had enough confidence and it changed, you know, it changed the experience for me. Like, I can't believe, you know, I've been elk hunting for 20 years and never experienced this. And so that's some of that, the other stuff that's really rewarding for me is uh, like what we're doing is affecting you know a lot of people out there chasing elk um every year yeah i mean 
I probably have owned every model of diaphragm you have made. And one of the things I loved about your Easy Bugler, and we talked about this before we recorded, but I've got a super hyperactive gag reflex, and I've tried probably every type of uh, diaphragm call there was on the market, tried to modify them any different way I could think, and just never could, You, I could never use them. So um, I, a guy like me is thankful for something like the Easy Bugler, because it makes a guy who can't use a diaphragm still able to, you know, to bugle or do those calls. Um, and I don't know. It, it almost makes you feel like <laughs> what's the I, makes you feel like a real boy. There, <laughs> I'm a real how about man. that? I feel like a real boy, right? Because, <laughs> you know, the first few years I went elk hunting, I'm like, I don't even have I'm not even going to put a tube in my pack because I can't do it anyway. You know, I've. I don't even know if I had like diaphragms. I remember one time I was like, I'm going to have this diaphragm. And if I have to, I'm going to force myself to use it. And you know, that's not going to happen. What are you going to do? Sit there and be like, uh, uh. No. well, especially because yeah. you can't yeah. practice with it. No, so you, yes. you're like, I'm going to do the first time. It's going to be great. And I'm going to be yeah. on the mountain. And I remember yeah, it doesn't happen when I started way. looking for external bugle tubes, I bought, and I'm not going to name brands because I'm not here to run anybody down, but I bought a bunch of what I would call, garbage like okay here's this one this is gonna work and then it's just like oh this is horrible okay i'm gonna try this one and uh so like the easy bugler is is a huge um a huge you know type of thing for those types of guys and then honestly when you have guys like uh you and dirt is another like he's a great in my opinion teacher on the youtube channel like when he's teaching people how to use the easy bugler it's like he's sitting right there with you showing you how to use it and yep. you can figure it out for sure. But I think that's where a lot of other companies failed is the education side of using calls where that's what I like so much about, you know, Jason Phelps originally was the teaching side of it. Um, yep. Okay. Here's the call, but then, Hey, this is how you can get good at it. Um, yep. And and it comes a lot. I mean, me and Dirk talk about when we make our education, we get, we go to our, you know, our sportsman shows in person, right? It's me and Dirk at the booth helping you. And so we got, the nice thing is we're the ones personally getting asked and we get to see why they can't run an easy bugler, why they can't run a diaphragm. And so it's easy once you go through that to then go back and build your videos because you know how to address any issue that somebody might have out there. Right. And um, yeah, it, it's, a good it's a good like i would say like a full circle that we get to be with people in person so when we go to make the video we know what all of those realistic um issues or run-ins or hurdles are going to be when you're going to use it so then we can address those in our videos um and that's really kind of our point is yeah you can go tell people how to use it but and this isn't meant to sound pretentious but me and dirk don't have a whole lot of issues with anything that we build so we don't know like oh it's because you you know, your, your lips too far back, or you didn't know where to place that. And so being able to see that in person, um, is really like helped us pinpoint, um, some of our education, which I think is, is helpful because as much as I hate to like think of the business is people, you know, like you becoming frustrated diaphragms, I have no, no doubt we could eventually get you figured out, but if somebody's not willing to kind of push through that hurdle, um, you've lost a customer. They don't have anything good to say about it. But if we can get these people to quickly, you know, break that wall down or kind of, you know, knock the hurdle down, 
um, then it looks good on the brand. And so, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of business uh, tact and, and education as well. Like we want people to be able to use our stuff and sound good on it. I would like to personally extend an invitation to you to try to figure me out. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm the one guy who's never going to be able to Probably do it. Probably not. Never gonna Dude, um, you, know, you obviously don't know me very well, but my whole life has been rough. Like, I can't go to the dentist. I, I have to go to the dentist, <laughs> but I can't get, like, x-rays in my – like, I can't do – it's – Dude, I just I'm, I'm a gagger. <laughs> so you, walk in, you walk in and they put the gas on. You're like, all right, he's got to have his teeth. Yeah, knock his ass out. out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. Like, imagine me growing up with strep throat when I had strep throat and you had to go get tested for strep throat. Doctors had to hold me down as a kid <laughs> to get that thing back there. But um, so okay, we're gonna make a hard pivot now. Well, before we make oh, that pivot, okay, so I do uh, just for listeners, you know, getting into it. Could you name off maybe, you know, three to four or five calls that you would suggest for a beginner that, you know, is just getting into the game? Some of those, you know, easy ones to use uh, just so they have something to go off of. Yeah. So um, I always recommend people try to start with diaphragms. It gives you, you know, as an archery elk hunter, even a muzzleloader elk hunter, somebody that's hunting during the rut gives you hands free. Right. Being able to use a diaphragm gives you the most ability to, uh, to make all the sounds, bulls and cows, add a motion to it, make every sound, you know, on, on the spectrum. And then with that, we do have a beginner three pack, which a lot of guys are like, well, I, I don't know if I can use one, uh, a three pack. What it does is we've, we've spaced them out far enough in our lineup that you might be a brand new caller, but you might need a call like Dirk uses because you're going to put a lot of pressure and air on it. So we'll have one that's on this side of our spectrum. And then we're going to give you one that's easier to run. Just because you're new doesn't mean that you need like a light call. So what we try to do is is give you three calls. Um, you know, you may be able to use two and not the other one, or not sound as good, or it may break over. And what it really does is give us a really good starting point. So we do have a beginner three pack um, that we recommend to everybody. It gives us a really good uh, idea on where people are at. And then I would say, aside from that diaphragm, um, we've got the easy sucker, which is the inhale elk call for people that can't run a diaphragm you can run that hands free while you're archery elk hunting so you still have the ability to make elk sounds and not have to move and then our new uh, our new bugle tube now accepts the easy bugler it's a little bit cheaper than our aluminum bugle tube and has the flared mouthpieces for people running diaphragm so you kind of get to you know make sure you can keep practicing but then also have the easy bugler at your at your side if needed so that would be kind of Everything that I would ever need to hunt with, three diaphragms, an easy uh, sucker, and then the new Unleashed V2 with the easy bugler, um, and it has the flared mouthpiece. So with that setup, like, it's 99% of what I need while I'm out in the elk woods. Okay, awesome. Good call. Yeah. Okay, now hard pivot. Yeah. Hard pivot. Uh, we're going to talk about whitetail because, you know, that's what we cut our teeth on growing up, obviously. Not even growing up when we started hunting, Micah growing up, but... Um, you've gotten into the whitetail and, uh, one of your, it's not your last episode, but the episode that you guys had on cutting the distance where we're introducing Dirk, uh, as a co-host, you guys were talking about, uh, you know, the superior being, being the elk and then, um, the second best one being the whitetail, not the mule deer, Jason. The white tail. Well, that's the, you're you're you're, lay, you're running down Dirk's list, not my list. <laughs> no, no. Um, but you recently, and I don't know, you might have hunted white tail throughout your life, but I know recently you've you've started uh, hunting white tail. So, have you never hunted white tail before you started the last few years? No, nope, last year was my first. Not only my first uh, 
it was my first whitetail hunt and my first whitetail tag was last year. Uh, you know, coos deer uh, excluded down in Mexico. Uh -huh. um, last year was like my first time hunting whitetails out of a tree stand. Um, so yeah, first real experience last year. Got another tag this year. So excited to to get back to it. But um, so yeah, what what do you think of it? I mean, what what do you think of it? What's uh, some of the stuff you think is cool about a whitetail compared? So like, I I love really those two equally. I really haven't messed with mule deer. I'm sure I would love them too. But in my opinion, elk and whitetail are not really the same thing. They're both cervids. We know that. Yep. But, you know, like the things that make hunting an elk hard, there's also things that make a whitetail. Like a whitetail is so dialed into every twig breaking. And, you know, I feel like a whitetail is even more worried about wind sometimes than elk can be at times. But, you know, like what have you noticed so far? um, with whitetail that is, uh, you know, cool for you. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's, it's human nature to try to relate everything to what you know, or what you're good at. Right. So for me, where you say they're different, like I am, it, it is different, but I'm trying to like tie, make all these connections between whitetail. It's a, it's a chess match on the ground or an elevated tree stand. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you're, you're trying and, and I love the game already. And that's why I think maybe even why i love mule you're just the same it's it's just you've got a problem the problem is me guy with a gun or a pointy stick wants to kill this deer right and then you've got all of these things happening or external effects nature going on rutting going on and then you're trying to basically figure out where that buck wants to be and why right um so the big the, one of the first differences is um you know elk the density I would say is lower than whitetail. If you're in a decent whitetail spot, you've probably got bucks around you or, you know, within a mile elk. Sometimes I've got to walk two or three more miles to get into the pocket or where their water's at or where their bed's at. So one thing I do like about whitetail is I can damn near climb up any tree stand. Yeah. That buck may not walk by me, but I'm, I'm in the game. Like any chance that buck could decide to, to come here. Um, so that's one thing I do like about whitetail. Um, one thing I don't like, at least where I hunt in Kansas, aside from, you know, sometimes the big bucks will come out on the ag field is you can't really see the things about trail cameras versus if I'm hunting elk, like I can see the biggest bull up in some, you know, alpine opening with his cows in the middle of September. So I don't like not necessarily knowing what's going on without the use of trail cameras. Um, and uh, I love like the, the idea of, so I now equate like setting up on an elk. When I locate an elk, I get in tight to hundred yards. I get the wind right. Now I now equate that to like, where am I going to hang my stand? Like if the wind does this, what's our predominant wind? Um, like is, where do I think this buck's going to approach from? What are, you're always calculating your risk, right? How do I get into the stand? Is he going to, you know, is, is my trail in going to screw things up? So I like just putting all of these pieces together to, to, to figure out where you want to be now. I'd be mis I'd be lying to everybody if I get to make all these decisions for myself because you know I'm on a property that my buddy owns it's already fairly well set up and a lot of this is figured out but just being on the ground I want to be like an active hunter you know and so I'm thinking like hey Randy why when we come in here like you know is this so the the deer can't smell us or hey if we were to to back this setup you know 25 yards they wouldn't be able to go behind us you know and so it's just being like an active participant in, in what's going on and then trying to figure out why and how come everything's set up the way it is. Have you found um, yourself? I, oh, I love it. Um, Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, um, and then at least 
at least where I'm hunting last year in Kansas, the deer were very callable. Like they would react to a grunt. They would react to a bleat. They would react to rattling, um, which to me, that's always been my thing, you know, probably why I love elk hunting so much, but um, to be able to interact with a deer um, and have some pretty good success, uh, it was just, it was a lot of fun. And there's something about just like watching the woods come alive while you're stuck in a tree that that's, that's pretty damn cool. Yeah. Uh, I've noticed this with myself because obviously elk hunting was the last thing I started doing, whereas whitetail hunting was the first thing I started doing. Um, as an elk hunter now, I find myself more and more okay with being on the ground hunting whitetail because as an elk hunter, I don't have a tree stand with me or even a saddle. I'm on the ground and yep. I'm, I'm trying to find elk. Mobile. I've heard of guys hunting elk out of saddles and tree stands, but that's, that's odd for me. Well, now with whitetail, if I feel like I need to make a move one day, I don't have any problem being on the ground. I mean, usually when I'm on the ground, I think, man, it'd be nice to be 10 foot up in this tree right now. But, you know, like, yeah. I don't have that issue. Has, was it weird for you at first to be like, I'm going to go climb this tree and sit in it for six hours and hopefully something walks by or, or, yeah. Or do you find yeah. yourself wanting to make moves because that's kind of what you've grown up doing is, you know, being mobile? Yeah, there's uh, in a few of the stands where you can see and some of the stands were on field edges and, and the deer, you know, the buck, even a target buck would come out on the opposite side of the field. And like, I'm instantly like, I can get out of here. I could back up, go down this ditch line, get in that ditch line. Like he won't see me and then I'm going to ambush him over there. Right. So your brain instantly goes there, but then you're like, Ah, what are my chance? You know, you, at least with me, I always put chances on, even when I'm elk hunting, deer hunting, like that's got a 10% chance of working. That's got a night. And so I would, I would develop these plans and then I'm like, well, that's probably not going to work. Cause he's got seven does out there with them and I'm going to get picked off somewhere, you know? So it is, you're like instantly going into Western mode. I'm going to spot and stalk this thing. I don't need to run a call. I don't need him to, I'll just go to him. But, um, I just, man, I don't know, you know, if the situation's right, I think it could work, but, uh, I just, I would say you could, like you can stand. do that, but the thing about a whitetail, and I'm sure you've already experienced this now, even if even if where you're hunting in Kansas is super unpressured or whatever, they're spooky. Oh yeah, whitetail, they're just like spooky. they will try to catch you. Like if they think something's up, they'll put their head down, pretending like they're going to feed, and then boom, right back, just try to catch you moving. Yeah, they're yep. so spooky, they're so on edge all the time that you know, like that move that you might make. Dude, they might have saw you getting down out of your tree and you spent the next hour and a half trying to get around him and he's been gone for two hours. You know, like right. they yep. are so spooky that I have made moves before on deer and one time it almost worked. No. But usually it's, it's really <laughs> difficult, like on a whitetail, especially that probably as an elk hunter, you see that whitetail 200 yards away or wherever, how far he is away on the other side of the field. And yes, a whitetail is callable. We all know that. Um, you know, they typically don't talk back. I mean, they will, but you know, that's where there's a difference because it's not like a buck's going to scream back in your face. Um, they can, but they're not super uh, obviously loud when they do it. And it's just weird, you know. As a, I was. That's one thing I wanted to ask you is, as an elk hunter, is it weird to see a buck that's 350 yards away and know that you probably can't touch him? Yeah, I hate everything about it. <laughs> but back, yet right? you still do it. Yeah. 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 It's like, that's what keeps you coming back. It's like, well, is he going to do that tomorrow? Should I go, you know, is there a stand closer? Where did he come from? Um, 
you know, and, and that's, I, I love, I love that part of it. And I, I love it being new and fresh, right? So I'm still in my own mind. I think you make these big spider web, you know, of, of decisions. Well, you know, you're trying to figure it out. Well, I don't have very many of those connections made yet. So it's something new. It's something, it's a new challenge I'm trying to figure out. And so I think I love that like building process of, of the, you know, of learning these things. And, uh, but I also boil it down to like, hunters uh, you know hunters that, that got it figured out or successful hunters like you could there's just i think we overcomplicate it and, and i i say this as oh, a guy yeah. that provides education and a guy that that hit, you know semi made a living off of telling people how to do stuff but man i could tell you how to like my my how to elk hunt would be less than five minutes like what really really matters um and, and it's the same with whitetail now is I think you get the wind right. You need to be where they want to be. Um, you know, and make sure they never, never see or smell you. Uh, you know, and some of these things, and 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 it's it's not overcomplicated. Now, I, you know, all of your guys as diehard whitetail guys, you're like, oh, I would like to show him how tough this is. <laughs> like, I, I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying there's there's very few things that probably really, really matter. Um, wind you know yeah patterning Just, them yeah. getting them to, yeah wind yep. um you know getting a doe to hopefully walk down the trail that you're over or around or that area and there's there's not a lot to it um now now i i don't want any if you can redirect your hate mail away from me that'd be great <laughs> send, it, but, send it to me know. i'll handle it yeah, yeah um and and i suck at remembering things but have you been able to harvest your first whitetail yet did you get one i last did year? i killed I did. I actually, so in Kansas, you know, a lot of people know you can bait in Kansas during hunting season. So I very first morning in Kansas had probably 155, 160 inch six point, like come in Randy, the guy. Did I'm you just say a 160 inch six point? You mean by six by six? No, 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 no. I, excuse me. 10 point. Okay. 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 I was yeah. like, damn. So, so we were How big is that no, six I, pointer? I, think, I think I screwed that all up. Um, so like 155, 160 inch, uh, 10 point. And he's like, Randy's like, ah, he was a little goofy. And he's like, well, I think we can find something similar better. We got 10 more days and, and let him go. Um, and I think five days later, six days later, I shoot probably 130 inch eight point. But for me Good being the point. call guy, there were, there were three bucks on one doe. I could see him kind of go out through like right on the edge of the property. The neighbor had like an old CRP. They went out to a point I couldn't see him for about 15 minutes. And all of a sudden that doe came back down the river bend. She dove into the river. The first two bucks went after her. I grunted before the last buck went down uh, over the bank. And then he came right by my stand at six yards. And I was able to, to kill him at six yards. Um, but yeah, I gave up 30 inches of horn, but for the experience that I really wanted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who cares, you know? man? And so, yeah. 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 And, and that's the thing, like, I got lots of time. Like my first bull wasn't a 350 bull, right? And I got lots of time to build up to this. I just I wanted to do it my way, and it was cool. You know, as much as I love hunting with my buddies, I was, you know, it was one of those tree stands we walked into an hour and a half before daylight, kind of you know, half mile off the beaten path, and just got to sit there and watch the woods come alive. And so it was just, it was a cool experience, and and I'm glad that the first one happened that way. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, but yeah, it, it was it was a good buck. Fortunately, um, shooting iron wheels, I shot my same elk setup. It was straight, almost straight up and down. And I, you know, I was trying to figure out angles and everything, yeah. and it was straight broadside. And so I went down like right through the scapula on the shoulder, and it, I, I 
I hit all of the lungs and the heart, kind of the top corner of the, the lung and then hit his heart, but it, it basically spined him as it went through. So the deer just died right underneath my tree stand. I'm like, well, that's perfect. I have to that's always the best one because then you know. Easy track yeah. job. Yeah. So what was, I mean, did you feel, was it like, did you feel like it was the first time hunting? Like the first time you killed an elk? Was it that same sort of feeling? Cause it was a, a yeah, white tail. Yeah. yeah. Brand new experience. Um, yeah, it was just, it was cool. I, it was, you know, not saying that, you know, I've got this all dialed in, but you know, I've killed a lot of elk. I still love it. I'm not saying that it's the, the, the passion hasn't died. The excitement hasn't died off. It's just different feeling, right? You've killed a lot of mule deer. I've killed, or I've killed a lot of mule deer. It's, it's not, but you know, being your first white tail, it's like, this is a cool experience and I, I can't wait to get back. You always remember your first. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure you've had it before, but did you get to eat the meat? What was that like compared to, uh, Oh, it was awesome. Elk? Yeah. Really, really good. Um, yeah, I'd be, you know, a lot of everything we kill seems to be in the rut, especially with the bow nowadays, you know, we've, um, you know, it was good. It was really good. I, I think, you know, those, those, our season here in Washington, our rifle seasons before, I would say maybe some of those whitetail, but you know, these things are eaten on ag fields and, and, uh, yeah. they, they're pretty dang good eating even for a ready whitetail buck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always like the elk that we have, I always have a hard time cooking it. Cause like an elk is so lean that it looks uncooked when it's done. Like remember, remember the burgers we made uh, two year, two or three years ago. Well, at you, that, well, you're one of those people that like your stuff well done. No, anyways. you are you you lie on me all the time, <laughs> all the time. But no, you know what I'm saying. Like we're making these elk burgers, and uh, for whatever reason, I was cooking and too. Andy, Andy and I, Andy and I both brought something, right? Right. And I'm cooking these elk burgers, and I'm like, well, they're getting close to done, and before you know it, they're they're ruined you're like whoops went too far overcooked them yeah and that's yeah. that's the hardest part i've gotten with elk compared to like a beef cow is you know yeah it, it, if it looks not done it's almost done yeah <laughs> you know yeah okay no, well yeah, uh, we're, yeah everything that we eat yeah you know, i grew up in a in a growing up we ate a lot of deer and elk everything was overcooked and dry and then now once i realize it's like man that thing uh, an elk steak we do a lot of just pan fried elk steak it's like that thing should be on each side for about 40 seconds and 40 seconds 40 and you're done like that's all it needs to be cooked and tastes better it's way more like it, it, it way more tender and so yeah that, that's my my pro cooking tip is like very little time in the pan micah likes to give me a hard time because i eat my beef steaks medium not not yeah. what you're is ruining rare. they're yeah. just medium that's, that's barely acceptable like, <laughs> right any more than medium right ruined it hey, so right it's like, yeah, he, I think he confuses him, me with my sister who likes stuff She's charcoal briquette. She has gotten better. Yeah. but uh, <laughs> And so have I over the years. But, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like a, hey, you know, I'm good with some pink, but I don't want the thing bleeding on me as I'm eating it. It's not know? blood. Yeah. It's not blood. Uh, yeah. I, got, I have a, a yeah. funny quick story. A guy I used to work with, we went to Texas for work one time, and the lady comes out, and he, he orders a steak, and she goes, how would you like it done? He said, like this, put it on the thing, count to ten, Flip it over, count to ten, and put it on my plate. <laughs> he said that to her. I mean, I can and do I'm that. Like, okay, I'll do it. I'll eat it. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought that would be really cool to hear. You know, I mean, uh, for anybody that is uh, paying attention, I guess in the outdoor space, uh, I guess we could have probably had you introduce yourself at the beginning of the show. But Jason Phelps is, you know, um, 
to me, you know, an awesome an awesome elk hunter, an awesome steward of the uh, of the sport of elk hunting, and you know the outdoor community, and it's just kind of cool to hear him kind of go through a new thing. You know, like whitetail is new to him as of last year, and it's kind of cool to see, um, you know, someone who I consider I don't know what you consider yourself, but I consider Jason a pro. Like that's what he is. Right. I watch him. You know slay elk every year and do his thing and uh it's it's really cool so it's kind of cool to see his story on something new for him because everybody experiences yep. it at some point right yeah i i'm one of those guys that d- don't like things that i'm not really good at or the best at and so it, it takes a little humility to like go into the whitetail world and like i don't got this figured out i'm gonna need to ask questions i'm gonna need to learn but uh i like that process um and i think I think we'll, we'll get it at my 50 bucks. I want to be good at it. 50 bucks. You kill a 200 inch deer next year. Uh, I'm just saying <laughs> over in Kansas, you got a pretty good yeah, chance. He's in Kansas. Kansas got some good deer over, man. Yeah. yeah. Really good. deer. It, it's super blessed to be able to hunt that property that we get to there. And uh, Randy does a great job with it. And he's got some good deer. So, nice. uh, so you never know there, there are 200 inch deer, you know, around. You just don't know if they're going to walk well, by or not. If you ever go to Iowa, there's a 200 inch deer behind every tree. So yeah, then you're every, in really yeah, good that's shape. That's what everybody tells yeah. us. <laughs> but, um, okay. Well, before we get off, why don't you, uh, let people know kind of how can they can, uh, check out your uh, podcast, cutting the distance, uh, where they can get a hold of uh, Phelps game calls and check out your stuff. Yeah, so I think uh, Cutting the Distance is where all major podcasts are available, you know, Spotify, iTunes, all of that. Um, we're on Instagram, and uh, as of now, we, we talked about this before, me and Dirk are still answering most of the Instagram, so that's a good way to get a hold of me and Dirk. Um, I've got my own Instagram, finally. They, they talked me into starting that, um, and then we're on Facebook as well. Uh, our webpage is uh, phelpsgamecalls.com, and uh, yeah, we, we try to be real open. Um you know and available to everybody it's one thing we you know as things have grown and we've gotten bigger and bigger we didn't want to lose that like personal touch with with our customers or just people you don't have to be a customer like if you just want information want to ask something bounce an idea off of us we we're usually pretty available whether it's calling or scouting or an area you're going to go to where you'd concentrate like we're, we're usually available to help when we can awesome well, man, you got anything else for Jason? No, man, we just uh, appreciate you. You know, you had to wake up pretty early to get on our podcast. You know, we got to sleep in a little bit, but uh, we just appreciate your time and, uh, you know, just uh, enjoy the rest of your day, I guess. I do have to tell a quick funny story about okay. Jason. So this, this, this morning, my wife has to go into town and she calls me about an hour and a half before the podcast. And she says, hey, uh, I've got a flat tire. And I'm like, okay. She's like, are you going to come help me? I'm like. I better be done before Jason Phelps. She's like, who the hell is Jason Phelps? I'm like, only one of the biggest names in the elk industry. How do you not know who he is? She's like, she has nothing to do with hunting. She doesn't care about any of it. So it was just kind of funny because I'm like, I better be done by the time I get to go talk. So I did take care of my wife's tire. It's the third flat tire we've had in three days. So uh, yeah, we live on gravel. It is what it is. But um, yeah, Jason Phelps, thanks for coming on the show today and talking with us and uh, good luck on your season. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Good luck uh, out west on your guys' elk hunts as well. We appreciate it. All right, man. We'll see you. See you. Yeah, see you.